0: McKenna Crone graduated from the Notre Dame Law School in May. In her third year, she served as a team leader in the Exoneration Justice Clinic, a class and legal clinic that works to free people they believe were wrongfully convicted. Her team's goal is to exonerate Leon Tyson. Tyson is in prison for a 2015 murder in Elkhart about 30 minutes from campus. Let's listen to her explain why her team took Tyson as a client.
1: We have an intake team and we um, get cases that are initially screened that we think would be um, cases that we want to dive deeper into to kind of figure out if we want to take them or not. In one of our meetings, Elliot actually said, well, we have this one affidavit, um, let's call this witness and, and, you know, learn a little bit more. There was an affidavit filed by the suspected killer's mom saying that her son confessed to her that he committed this crime.
0: The intake team was meeting on Zoom when co-teacher Elliot Slosser called Tracy Walker Drake. Unexpectedly, she answered the phone and her revelation shocked the group. This recording is from a later interview with Slosser, but the story Walker Drake tells is the same
2: me back and he said, he said, he's dead, he's dead, he's dead. I said, who's dead, where? And he said, he's in the streets.
0: Tracy Walker Drake said that after the shooting, her son, Lamont Drake, fled Indiana to her home in Chicago and arrived hours later. She said he had blood spatter on his brand new shoes and sat silently crying with a blank look on his face.
2: I'm asking him what's going on, what's going on? And that's when he went on to tell me that he is shot and killed. Um, this person, and um, he finally told me the person's name and I asked him, you know, what, why, and he just, he said, it doesn't matter, you know, he tried to rob me. And then he went on to ask me, or ask him over and over again, what should he do? Because he had left his um, clothes with his identification in the bag.
0: The Elkhart police confiscated those lost items as evidence, but they never sent anyone to the Chicago address on Drake's ID. They never even looked for Drake, who was killed a few months later. Instead, they arrested and tried his friend, Leon Tyson. Tyson was convicted of murder in 2017 and sentenced to 63 years in the Indiana Department of Corrections.
1: Once we heard that there was an alternate suspect, that we had pretty pretty verifiable information, committed the crime, um, we all, you know, in unison were like, oh my gosh, this is so this witness is so credible, this is such good information, we want to take this case.
0: The law students who believe Tyson is innocent are working to exonerate him with the guidance of Jimmy Garule, a law school professor, and Elliot Slosser, a civil rights attorney from Chicago. They filed a petition for post-conviction relief on May 19th with evidence they hope will warrant a new trial for Tyson. Exonerations are more common than you may think. There have been nearly 2,800 wrongful convictions overturned in this country since 1989. That's an average of one every four days. Each case is the unique story of a real human being whose life has been torn apart. But the 10 people represented by the Notre Dame Exoneration Justice Clinic have one thing in common. They're being helped by law students who are discovering what it means to be a different kind of lawyer in a flawed criminal justice system. I'm Brendan O'Shaughnessy, and you're listening to the Notre Dame Stories series, Proving Innocence. In the summer of 2015, Tyson and Drake and another friend were visiting Tyson's girlfriend, Danielle Buford, at her apartment building in Elkhart. The Chicago friends allege that Buford's uncle, Tommy Lee Strouder, stole a gun from the visitors and had to return it or pay money.
1: So the victim is confronted. You stole from me, you stole from me. There's a fight inside. And then as Tommy is exiting the apartment, running down the back steps, um, he is shot at. And he is then running across the street, shot at again. He actually um, falls to the ground once he's crossed the street into like the neighbor's um, like driveway next to the house. Danielle, who is the niece of the victim, is seen on video and admits to police that she, you know, shortly after starts to pick up shell casings to try to um, cover up what happened.
0: The case hinges on who the shooter was. Danielle Buford testified at trial that Tyson shot her uncle. The Notre Dame students believe Drake was the shooter. Besides Tracy Walker Drake's revelations, The exoneration clinic also found an eyewitness to the murder who never talked to the police. Like some trial witnesses, she described the shooter as having dreadlocks, saying she was 110% sure of it. This description is crucial because Tyson's friends both wore their hair in dreadlocks, but Tyson was bald. He was diagnosed at a young age with alopecia, a medical condition that prevents hair growth. The students traveled to Chicago last October to speak with Tyson's mother. They collected pictures and medical records.
1: Leon is bald and has been bald um, from a very young age because of alopecia. And all of the eyewitnesses the defense called said that the shooter was, you know, had dreadlocks, had definitely had hair. That's also an interesting part of this case is that there were so many eyewitnesses because people were out on their porches. It was the summer.
0: The state managed to push aside the hair description at trial by suggesting that Tyson could have shaved his head between the murder and the trial. But the evidence exhibits show Tyson did not and could not grow hair. The day after the murder, the hair question arises again.
1: So the next day, a neighbor calls anonymously to the police saying that there is somebody entering the apartment where this all took place. And they are, what the, um, that witness said was that they were taking things from the apartment and putting them into a white van. The white van is known to be Danielle Buford's. They said that the man entering the house and bringing materials to the white van had dreadlocks. Um, that's important because Leon is bald. The police actually um, get to the apartment and they chase this person with dreadlocks through an alleyway. Um, and they actually see this person get into a red vehicle and leave, and they never, they don't pursue. Um, Shortly thereafter, they have a dog with them who recovers a gun in that alleyway moments after this um, chase occurred. And that gun matches the shell casings. uh, That that gun is later connected to the shell casings um, and said to be the murder weapon.
0: At the 2017 trial, the prosecutor said in his final argument, quote, There's three main pieces of evidence, three huge pieces that are going into the puzzle that is the guilt of this defendant. These puzzle pieces consisted of the testimony of Danielle Buford, ballistics evidence and a partial print on the magazine of the gun used to shoot Strouder.
1: Basically, the trial was the state building up this eyewitness account from Danielle Buf- Buford saying she saw it. She was there. You should trust her. Even when she did something wrong, like pick up the shell casings, she admitted to it later. Um, so the trial was Danielle Buford, and then it was the forensic evidence. So it was the fingerprint um, found on the magazine of the gun, and then it was the shell casings matched to to this gun. Um, Leon Tyson's fingerprint was on the magazine, um, there were were several prints taken, but only one was deemed, you know, usable. and it did did match Leon. The fingerprint on the magazine does not prove that Leon Tyson did this. There's evidence that he was, you know, with these individuals. They were friends. they were all handling these guns. It's not surprising that his fingerprint was on the gun.
0: While the prosecution heavily relied on Daniel Buford's statements. Her testimony shifted several times over the course of the investigation. Besides concealing evidence by throwing the shell casings in the trash, she also lied about where and how she met up with Tyson after Strouder was killed. Buford first told police that Tyson forced her at gunpoint to leave the scene, which led investigators to charge him with criminal confinement in addition to murder. Then at trial, Buford said Tyson ran off after the shooting and got in her car to drive to a friend's house. And at one point, she said she never left the scene with Tyson at all, saying she walked to a neighbor's house to call 911. At trial, Buford said she never called 911. Quote, this case is just as much about Daniel Buford and her lies as it is about Mr. Tyson, said Tyson's defense lawyer in his opening statement. She will walk into trial, not in chains, because she hasn't been charged with any kind of crime due to her involvement in this case. How many times will Miss Buford fool us?
1: There were two charges. So it was murder and it was criminal confinement because in addition to Danielle saying that Leon committed the murder, she also said that he um, confined her to her bedroom and then actually forced Danielle to get into the car and drive to Chicago at gunpoint. So after nine and a half hours of deliberation, which is also important, um, he was found guilty of murder, but not guilty of criminal confinement. So actually it was a split verdict and he's been in in prison ever since.
0: Crone and her team think a series of failures in the justice system led to Tyson's wrongful conviction.
1: The first failure is is policing. Um, Like we said, There were confirmed, no one disputes, three individuals there. Leon is the only one that was ever even spoken to. The other two individuals fled to Chicago, which is, as we know, only an hour and a half north and were never spoken to. The police didn't come to their door. There was no further investigation. It was like, we have this person and now we're gonna build a case to make it, to confirm. It was just a kind of a classic example of, like, confirmation bias. I also think um, there was a lot of, of interesting race issues um, at trial. And some comments made, you know, two black people, you can't really tell them apart. Some of the eyewitnesses, one of the eyewitnesses was, was um, seen saying that.
0: Mistaken identification is common among black exonerees in Indiana. Out of all individuals wrongfully convicted in part because of mistaken identification in the state, 93% were black and 7% were white. The students and their investigator, Patty Fayed, were able to find new witnesses and re-interview past witnesses to see if they were coerced into false statements.
1: And I think I've learned in the past couple of years to really look at the evidence um, and look for the patterns that we've seen in our other cases, whereas somebody without maybe that trained eye would look at the documents and look at the text messages and and, and really would just maybe confirm the, what the state put on. We're lucky with this case because it was so recent. In a lot of our other cases, you know, we're talking about the 90s, and when we go out on the street in Elkhart to talk to people, they've moved three or four times from the addresses and the information that we have. So here we... We were actually able to go to the apartment um, and talk to the next door neighbors who still live there. But we now know based on which, even which officers were at the scene, which officers were talking to people, which officers were writing statements, um, which witnesses, um, you know, had past convictions and were now seem, seemingly got a deal after testifying against our client. Those patterns. Um, are something we look for when we're going through the evidence. Most of our new evidence here is um, eyewitness accounts that were not investigated.
0: If he were to be exonerated, Tyson's case would contribute to a pattern among exonerations in Indiana. Statistics show that 42% of exonerees in the state were black and 58% were white. Those numbers do not correlate with the population of black residents in the state or even the percentage of black inmates in prison. This indicates that wrongful convictions are more likely if you're black. The first line of Tyson's May filing lays out the big picture. An epidemic exists where innocent people are wrongfully convicted as a result of police misconduct, false and fabricated testimony, and the widespread failure to disclose material exculpatory evidence. Tragically, these unjust convictions often take decades to unravel leaving innocent men and women to languish in prison for crimes they did not commit. Elliot Slosser, the Chicago civil rights attorney who co-teaches the exoneration clinic, said Tyson's case stands out to him because so much evidence points against his guilt.
1: It's pretty
2: fascinating. because I actually think in Leon's case, to an objective person, I think that it's, uh, it was kind of obvious the whole time that he didn't do it just based
1: on the description of the killer um, the shooter and um, and Liam's physical description uh, and so you know it's like to this day I'm sort of like I'm not sure why this guy got charged'm <laughs> not sure how he got convicted um, but
0: um,
2: but that's sort of what caught our interest in that case for sure
0: Slosser said there is no timeline for the next steps in this case. There are motions to move the case to another judge in jurisdiction, and each step takes time, especially with the courts just coming back after the pandemic. For Crone, her next step is to become a prosecutor after she passes the bar.
1: Obviously, I want to be on the other side of these cases, but I think it's almost more important for prosecutors to be in a class like this, and I think our project is really great at emphasizing that. So I think... The biggest impact it has had on me is learning the pitfalls that prosecutors fall into, um, oftentimes not even with any malintention. The second thing that I think it's taught me is like these are real people. You shouldn't become a prosecutor because you want to win. You shouldn't um, go into criminal justice because you want to learn how to speak well in a courtroom. It should be about you know ensuring the safety of a community, um, upholding human dignity, making sure that our systems are are doing what they're supposed to be doing. And I think um, that this is a perfect example of of how how the criminal justice system can really hurt people instead of what it's supposed to do is really help. Like this can happen anywhere. Um, you're not like this this does exist, this type of deep, entrenched, pattern of systemic failure for, for communities is very real. So it was a good reminder of that. And maybe, like I said, it just made it more more real.
0: That positive view of justice is the same motivation that drove Tracy Walker Drake to come forward and admit that her son committed the murder that put Tyson in prison.
2: I know my, my son killed someone. And to have someone else to do time for that is just not the right thing to do, and I think because it's not. I think because I have lost someone as well, and I think that this the, this drought family deserves closure, just like I would like closure for my son's death. And that's why I'm I'm glad that I'm able to come forth, so the family could move on with closure, because I know what they're going through, and I cannot live, you know, knowing that my son did something and the person is being wrongfully convicted. I can't do that.
0: Proving Innocence is produced by the Office of Public Affairs and Communications. I'm your host, Brendan O'Shaughnessy. Our music is by Alex Mansour. Thanks for listening. Next episode, we'll hear the story of a woman who has spent the last 21 years in prison. She's scheduled for release next year. But the Notre Dame law students are racing the clock to exonerate her before her term ends.